tell you what, I'm so glad it's rained today, by the way. Um, so it cooled it down in there. So yeah, for the last three days, everyone else has been talking about torrential rain and storms. And I've been sat here in 99% humidity in a conservatory and then when it when it rains for about three minutes it tends to be really inconvenient around timing so you, it sounds like you're in some air raid shelter and then ah, the sun yeah. comes out and you melt again but, but yeah hey ho anyway uh, good morning good evening good oh good afternoon good overnight i've got got that right overnight i think so um I'm i think Anthony. that's the right order and yeah. yeah yeah i'm anthony price and i'm jonathan bradley and it's uh, lovely to be on our global leadership podcast yet again. Mm. How's how's life for you? And what is a Sunday afternoon here in Ramsgate? I'm mm. looking out over the foundations of my shed. And I'm looking at the reflection of myself in a patio door in the conservatory in a more cooler Hampshire, United Kingdom. Um, what have you been up to? Anyway, how's the how's the progress coming along in your new mansion you're building in your garden? Uh, it's absolutely brilliant. I've had to do an awful lot of foundation work uh, for this shed only because my garden is full of different levels and there's um, special things that I've put down called padstones and pedestals, which sounds like an interesting book for the future. <laughs> but um, I, I now have a level area for my shed to be built on. So over the next few weeks, uh, it, the only way is up now that I've, I've got the base done. So uh, that's, that has taken an awful lot of my time. And so I've been dancing around on a building site, taking calls, uh, finishing off the last bits of the book I'm writing, working with uh, my team uh, on scripts and audio and videos and God knows what it's it, it I, feel, I feel quite sort of exhausted, to be honest. <laughs> Trying to do all this physical labour and... Uh, keeping my brain in gear is is quite challenging. What about you, Anne? Um, hey, look, much the same as when we last had our podcast. Um, working from home is a norm for me, minus the lack of travel. The challenge has been, if I'm really honest, um, that the kids are finally at breaking point mm. of there's no more board games they can play. There's no more cakes they can make. There's no more painting stones that they can do. Everything is boring and they want to do something. Yet, unfortunately through a probably successful public relations campaign, many um, of my, of children, including my own, are nervous to go back to school for fear of dying. Um, so there's this perfect storm of unwillingness to, you know, my wife being a, a key worker, in theory, we could send them in occasionally, um, but we've chosen not to do that because not only do we not want to burden the school, but equally, even if we had the need to send them to school because I had to go into the office, um, they would be nervous to do so. Um, and I think, ironically, now they would probably be prepared to take the risk just just to get out the bloody house. Um, I mean, on the plus side, the weather has been good, isn't it, up until recently? But other than that, the house hunting still continues. Um, we uh, are viewing more and more houses that seem to match our agenda. The challenge is calling the market at the right time um, because there is a sense... If you read the independent statisticians, that there is going to be a downturn in in house prices, which anyone listening that is not looking to move, I guess that's no bad thing, because if you're not moving, it's irrelevant. But for those people that are moving, I guess that there is anxiety around that, whether that means they get less for their house or they then can't afford to move and there's negative equity. But obviously, from our perspective, bearing in mind, as most of the listeners know, we sold a few months ago, we are... 
um, kind of sitting pretty, but it's muggy poo. Yeah, but of course, then you have the likes of of commercial companies like Right Move Publishing. Um, that the market is pent up and the, the you, people need to exchange really quickly before the house prices escalate. I don't think it's anything to do with that. I think the people that are looking to exchange quickly have sold before COVID and are worried their buyers are going to pull out because of the devaluation. That's why they want to exchange. Nothing to do with, um, you know, this pent up demand. And when I talk to the more honest agents, they tend to be saying, yeah, it was busy for the first week after lockdown, you know, or the restrictions eased on us. But now mm, I'm, I'm not as convinced. So it's calling it right. But equally, I buy with my head. My wife buys with her heart. And I'm constantly saying, no, we're not putting an asking price offering on this one. We've got to think logically here, three to five year return, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas, you know, she's kind of, well, let's just buy it. Let's just buy it. And then there is a risk, of course, that we don't then want to buy a house that in six months time is worth £50,000 less. Um, so that's been the week that was in the price household. <sighs> Sounds so, very unsettling to me. Yeah. Very uncertain. Very unsettling. I hope you're all all right. I hope Nicola's okay because that is quite a, mm. a a tricky situation, really. She's week on, week off. She's normally part time, so she's doing one week full time, one week off, which does have its advantages for her sanity because she can leave the house. Whereas me and the children have been stuck in the house for you know since we moved into this rented house two months now. So it's some kind of like the dog walk is the only outing so to speak and uh anyway but it, it, i think you know what we could probably have a whole conversation itself on the longevity of lockdown and its impact because um you know i think there are days where we just think this is never going to end is it um and and so on but but there we go um anyway I, I we digress um this week is a bit of a treat so listeners as you know we love you to send in your questions and we do have three questions but i think we should save them for another week because this week um jb and myself really wanted to tackle a difficult topic and in a few minutes um we're going to play a recording that we've just finished by the way so just this this will screw it will cause a black hole in our listeners minds but we've just finished a recording which we're about to play you um of a really fantastic um, political expert, broadcast extraordinaire called Ian Dale, who in the UK is a broadcaster on a on a national station um, who has pretty good followings um, for his ability to bring people together despite having differing opinions and actually seems to moderate discussions in such a way that I'm envious of from a business perspective. But this week's episode for us... I'll let JB read out the title because for me it, it, it it's a bit of a tongue twister. Um, but JB, let me see if I yeah. Let me see if I could read my writing. And so um, it, it, it's about leading teams where passions and politics are rife in a no normal world. Isn't that pithy? That is fantastic. Um, now, now at this point, should we play the recording now, or should we have our own opinions first? What do you want to do? I would suggest that we let the listener get straight into it. Okay, so uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Uh, Today is a rather interesting day. We're going slightly off-piste, and we're going to be covering this lofty, lofty title, which is Leading Teams Where Passions and Politics Are Rife in a No Normal World. Uh, and we're joined today by British broadcaster Ian Dale. Uh, both Ant and I uh, listen to his show on LBC, 
Um, but broadcasting own, isn't the only uh, thing that Ian does or is involved with. Uh, Ian is uh, a publisher of books and magazines. In fact, was. he owned, was. He owned his own <laughs> publishing company, um, which he ran and sold. So he's not just a broadcaster. He also has some uh, history of, of running organizations. Um, he's written columns in uh, many newspapers. And if I actually recited all of them we would have a podcast no, for several hours so we won't do that but that's not all that's not all uh, about ian uh, he is a political commentator but i don't think that does it justice really he is immersed in politics i hope he doesn't mind me saying that he's a champion of uh, civility in politics and tough on sleaze and the causes of sleeves in politics. Did I say sleeves? I meant sleaze. Finally, um, Ian has a podcast with Jackie Smith, the former Labour Home Secretary, called For the Many. Um, and uh, they both come from different sides of the political spectrum, I think it's fair to say. And I think this adds a zingy tension uh, to their show. And that's my term. Uh, welcome, Ian. Thank you very much for having me. It's a, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show. This is the most formal and... introduction he's ever done, by the way, Ian. Normally, <laughs> we'd talk about absolute bollocks around our house and then we'd, we'd get into the crux of the topic. But there we go. I was going to say, one, one of the big reasons, Ian, we wanted you on, on the, the, the programme, if, if we can call it that, is that you have a unique style that seems to attract all different types of people from different ends of the spectrum. And you seem to be able to have a really constructive conversation with them without almost trying to trip them up. And I think um, as a business leader and listeners to our podcast, there is always this anxiety about having an opinion that may polarise opinion within the workplace and other bits and pieces. So we're really keen to kind of get your thinking on on how you seem to um, uh, navigate uh, political situations and actually still have respect of each other at the end of the conversations because um, you know there are so many businesses right now that are being challenged with opinions uh, what's your take on it um, there's potential risks of boycott if you have an, a, a position on something that may um, offend employees or or your customers so there's this this whole ho host of pressure that that kind of gets stuck into it well, I've had to think about this quite this sort of thing quite a lot recently because I've been writing a book um, which is coming out in August. It's called Why Can't We All Just Get Along, Shout Less, Listen More? And um, it's mainly, the, the aim of the book is to talk about the decline in public discourse. I'd say not just over the last few years, but going back a lot longer than that. And I've come to the conclusion that the reason why I, I think my show is quite popular on the radio is because... I'm a lot less tribal than I used to be. I used to be active in party politics. I stood for Parliament once for the Conservatives. But I think, and Jackie Smith, I think, would agree with this, in that we, we both make an effort to understand the other's point of view. And I think this is actually translatable into business. If you go into, an, into a negotiation, you kind of need to understand where the other guy's coming from. What is, what's the other person's bottom line? What really drives them? What motivates them? And if you can't understand that, if you make no effort to understand that, you're probably not going to be very good at your job. And I think that that's the same in radio broadcasting. It's the same if you're a leading politician in the cabinet. You need to understand where, where the other people are coming from, what drives them. Uh, and the trouble is nowadays, people are so comfortable in their own echo chambers, in their own silos, that they, they don't really want to break out of it. They, they just want to listen to people that they agree with. And 
I, I make a point on my radio show. So look, I don't want you necessarily to phone in if you agree with me. How boring is it? If I pose a question, I give my opinion, and then for the next hour, you all ring and agree with me. <laughs> I mean, how, how interesting is that? So I would much rather have a bit of a debate. And you can have an argy-bargy without it turning into a shouting match or being nasty. At least I think you can. And okay, there are times when I will lose it a little bit. But I'll probably only do it, I don't know, once a week, once a month, whatever. And, and people always think that presenters on talk radio stations are shock jocks. Well, there are some people like that, but they're very, it's a very tired act now. And it's very predictable. And if I, if I lose it on occasion, people sit up and notice because they know that I don't normally do that. So they think, oh, what, what's got into him? Why has he done that? And then they start questioning and maybe they then understand a bit more. I think it's exactly the same in whether it's in broadcasting, whether it's in politics, whether it's in business. You've got to get out of your own silo to understand the world that you live in. I, I find that uh, people I speak to who have, you know, they have different uh, opinions about things, but actually the art of expressing that opinion without going into an aggressive overly confrontational style is sorry <laughs> that wasn't me um <laughs> you had the egg at lunch being able to express an opinion freely and effectively is one thing and the other is and i don't know why this is but people have lost the art of debate they don't know how to debate which is why i was attracted to the idea of uh you coming on the podcast here because how do you actually create an environment of healthy and sometimes uh, high-tension debate without everybody losing their shit? Um, you, you have to create a, a comfortable environment where people feel that they can contribute to it. If they know that all you're doing is, all, if all you want to have is a shouting match, there'll be a lot of people that will take part in that, but they're probably not the kind of people that you want to hear from. I always remember in my first week on LBC back in 2010, um, I hosted an hour on the fact that, the, that Channel 4 had won a case at the advertising... The Advertising Standards Authority or something, um, that a case had been brought saying that they couldn't have adverts for abortion clinics, like B, um, what they could be, British Pregnancy Advert, BPAS. Um, anyway, they won it, so they could. So I asked the question, was this the right decision? Should Channel 4 be allowed to advertise abortion clinics? Um, instead of getting a load of people talking about that, I got a load of women phoning in telling me about their abortions. Now, I was a bit perplexed by that, partly because it was way outside my comfort zone. <laughs> um, but also, I was thinking, well, what, why did they do that? And so I had a conversation with my boss afterwards, and he said, well, they phoned in because you've got a, a quiet voice, you don't interrupt them, you let them speak, and you're not threatening to them in the way that, shall we say, um, one or two other presenters might be naming no names. And he said, that's a real strength. And what I found over the years is that when I do these sort of emotional type phone-ins on mental health, um, suicide, rape, whatever, I get the most amazing stories out of people. And, and the secret is actually to listen to what the other person's saying, because they, they, the reason they phoned in is to tell their story. 
It's not to have a, a, an argument with you. I mean, when you're doing that type of phone, so you have to create the ambience to get the best out of people. Um, and if it's an aggressive environment, and I think a lot of companies that um, obviously involve a lot of uh, salespeople who inevitably are going to be quite, I'd say often, gross generalization, but gobby aggressive people. How do you get the best out of those people? Is it setting them up against each other in a confrontational way or not? And I mean, every, every company or every organization will have a different way of doing it. But self-knowledge is a wonderful thing which if you're in your 20s and 30s, you, you possess a bit of it, but you don't have the, the full amount. And I reckon it was only until I was about 50 that I really had that full self-knowledge. I, I, I'd worked out what I was really good at and what I was not so good at. And then you concentrate on the things that you're good at and make, make the best out of them. You try and improve the things that you're not so good at. Um, but I think back to decisions I made um, in my 30s and 40s. Particularly, I mean, I've run seven different businesses, employed probably, I don't know, 400 people over, over the years. And I look back to decisions that I made in those years. And I would now have made completely different decisions because of my experience in all sorts of different ways. Um, now, that's easy for me to say at the age of 57. Yeah, I know I don't look it. Um, <laughs> um, and, but, it, I mean, life is all about learning. And if you don't learn from the decisions that you make, whether they're right or wrong ones, you're going to make the same mistakes all over again. Mm -hmm. Having done my thorough research on it, you, Ian, I realise that your birthday is coming up soon, isn't it? And we're not going to sing happy birthday. OK, so I'll be 58. What of it? <laughs> <laughs> well, me too. And as I was doing all my in-depth research on you, uh, I realised that we are actually the same age. And if I didn't have this long beard, which I, it was a corona beard, I think um, I would look as young as you now. But um, Yeah, well, I, I would kill for your hair. <laughs> I mean, isn't isn't that cruel that sort of I don't have any and you have all of that? I, I, I did. Well, I thought, well, Corona, I'm just going to see what happens if I just <laughs> stop going and having it cut. And it's just this is it. This is I'm turning into a bear. Well, lucky you. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Ant, I interrupted. No, 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 it's fine. So in your experience, who in the political world at the moment is particularly good at having that respect and debate where people can leave the room without that polar opinion at the end of the person or thinking less of them? Well, it is interesting. You look at the two people at the top of politics, Boris Johnson and, and Keir Starmer. Now, Boris Johnson has been incredibly successful because he is Boris Johnson. I mean, he he has that personality that you either love or you hate. Um, even people who don't like his politics are kind of somehow pulled in by his personality. And this is where a lot of, I think, political journalists have gone wrong over the years. In that They assume that because he's posh, because he went to Eton, because he's got this sort of slightly stuttering posh way of speaking that his appeal doesn't translate outside the M25. Well, we saw in the election, it really did. And that came as a huge surprise to people, I think, especially in the BBC. Um, it didn't come as a surprise to me at all, because I know that you walk down the street with Boris Johnson, it can be in Kensington, or it can be in Halifax, and people will come out of the shops and hairdressers and want their selfies taken with him. Now, there aren't many people who've got that. He's got what you describe as it. We can't define what it is, but you've either got it or you haven't. It's not something you can learn. Ian Duncan Smith never had it. Tony Blair did. Margaret Thatcher did. I don't think Gordon Brown did, really. Mm. Um, and But Boris has got it in spades, and he capitalises on that. Now, Keir Starmer, on the other hand, hasn't got it. 
I don't think. But he's got a very interesting way of engaging. He's a very calm debater. I mean, he is a bit too loyally, I think. But I think as a contrast to Boris Johnson, I think there may come a time when people are fed up with the bluster. They may well gravitate to somebody who they see as a serious person. Um, and often, if you look back at, over the, I mean, since the time that we've been alive, you have um, Harold Wilson, who was quite an extrovert, um, knew how to work a room and all the rest of it. He was then followed by Jim Callahan, bit of an introvert, followed by an extrovert in Margaret Thatcher, followed by an introvert in John Major, followed by an extrovert in Tony Blair. You see where I'm going with this? Yeah. I mean, you go right, right up to now. It's sort of um, Gordon Brown, then David Cameron, then Theresa May, now Boris Johnson. And you could easily make an argument that the next prime minister, even if it's not Keir Starmer, is going to be someone who's, in personality terms, the polar opposite of what we've got now. Um, so I, I think there are other people. I mean, Rishi Sunak is an interesting one who four months ago no one really ever heard of. I don't think mm. I've ever met him. Um, he's somebody that comes across as a really nice guy. And he's a very popular politician at the moment because he's been throwing sweeties around the place. I mean, he's had to, yeah. but I mean, he, he hasn't had to make really tough decisions yet. Those are going to come um, once this is all over, if it ever is all over. How much of it's, um, how much of it's down to authenticity then? Because you, cause I sense with Theresa May, there was Maybot, Gordon Brown, you mentioned as well, having that 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 kind of not a huge amount of charisma so therefore the things that he was saying didn't necessarily come across with a huge amount of conviction or passion does that help with the debate and the leadership element well i think authenticity is important um i think boris struggles on that in a way because i mean the labor party attack on him the, the last election was oh well, he's a liar and they really went to town on that i mean every labor politician that i interviewed within 20 seconds of the interview starting they would get out oh of course he's a liar and I mean, think about the consequences of that for our public discourse for a moment. Um, I think he's authentic in his own unique way, um, but the public can spot a fraud a mile off. And they look at politicians who just go on television and mouth all the usual soundbites. And we see this in the press conferences on coronavirus every single day. There are some politicians who are really good at those press conferences, but most of them are terrible at them because they just recite from a script, they show no human empathy, um, uh, and somebody somewhere in number 10 should say, well, I don't think we, I don't think we should put that person up, uh, up again. Um, funnily enough, the one that I think has been most impressive is Grant Shapps, who most people wouldn't have predicted, but he, he comes across as a human being. He actually says, I don't know if he doesn't know the answer. And this is where I think politicians go wrong so often. They, they try to be an expert on everything, and they're not. Who, who can be an expert on every single subject? No, I don't know a single politician who's ever suffered from saying, I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that. I'll come back to you on it. It's just the adult thing to do. If, if you or I were in a business meeting and somebody was questioning something about the product that we were trying to sell them and we didn't know the answer, if we bullshitted them, do we think that they wouldn't know we were bullshitting? I mean, okay, sometimes maybe they, they wouldn't, but I'd say certainly eight times out of ten, people can see through that sort of thing. I think in, in, uh, in the workplace, uh, there, there has been, uh, in, in recent decades, 
a requirement for senior leaders and senior leadership teams. Uh, is it all right? I swear, Ant, have you? Can you put the blooper on this bit? No, I, um, I just—I tick it explicit. That's what I do. I've looked at Ian, okay. Ian and Jack. I know, but I, I, what, I, a, what a stupid fucking question! Yeah, bollocks. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, and so uh, we we have this phrase, which are quite like for for leaders who can only broadcast; they don't listen. Going right back yeah. to that earlier point that you made, they're not listeners; they're just broadcasters and they think that's their job and in fact the environment that was created for them uh, and one that they've they've kind of taken this into is um they give the benefit of their infinite fucking wisdom yes. that is their job is is so they got the opinion they've got the opinion and it's infinite because they feel i've got to give this opinion all the time i've got to have this opinion and you know the interesting thing is that i mean we're, we're recording this on zoom and o over the last three months i think we've all got used to doing meetings on zoom not just this sort of thing and um i think this is going to continue i think that the, our whole way of working is going to change and you you hear big banks who are now quite relaxed about the fact that they might have 25 30% of their workforce working from home at any one time think of the money that will save for one thing but if you've got 10 people on a zoom call you you can't interrupt them in the same way that you would in a meeting around a table in an office you do have to wait till someone finishes otherwise it just becomes a, a complete bun fight so i think that the the extroverts who tend to there's always one person isn't there in a meeting of 10 people there's always one person that will have their say more than anybody else and frankly it's usually me um, <laughs> but it, but but in this kind of environment, you do wait until somebody's finished speaking, and then you put in your two penny worth. Absolutely, absolutely, and and so with that in mind, uh, you know this uh, relationship between opinion and debate. Uh, we've got a polarised uh, society in the UK. I think there are other parts of the world uh, where it's pretty similar, America and so on, um, and then you've got to go to work. And as I said to Anne a few days ago, we were just talking this through, uh, you know, when, when you go through the door uh, or you set up your Zoom session, you still have that polarised view. You still have that anger. You still have that you're carrying all of the stuff that you feel. And I have friends and family and people I work with uh, where they have very strong views about this government, other governments, Trump, whoever, they go into the workplace that they come on a Zoom session and they have a, a wall of people who agree or disagree with them. Um, and the, the thing that I'm quite interested in uh, is what happens to leadership in that situation? Do you see yourself as a facilitator of it, a, an opportunity to create the debate or do you shut it down because it's going to get in the way of working? What do you think? I think that's a really difficult question because I suppose it depends on the subject matter. It depends on the circumstances. It depends on the kind of organisation. I, I, I mean, take Brexit as an example. Um, we all know of people who um, defriended people who they disagreed with on that subject on both sides. I would say that I think it happened more on the Remain side than the other side. If you look at all the polling evidence of this, that there is proof of that. And, and you look at this, whether, um, I can't remember what the exact statistics were, but there's something like 47% of Remainers would not want their son or daughter to marry a Brexiteer. 
on the other side of it, it was 11%. Okay. It was a very intolerant people in this world. But, I mean, people didn't, people split up relationships over it. Families fell out over it. I mean, I had that in my family to an extent. And my two sisters were accusing me of jeopardizing their daughter's futures, can you believe? Um, so wow. I think it's, it's very difficult to come back from that. And I do think that as a country, we had started to. And then, of course, coronavirus started. And, of course, there were all sorts of very polarized views on that as well as to... When should we have gone down to, gone into lockdown? When should it uh, come back? Cruel Tories starving poor children of uh, meals during a summer holiday and all that sort of thing. Um, and you see, that's where Marcus Rashford actually played a blinder, because if, if we were con- if we were writing a book about how to lobby successfully, we would use him as a case study, because he didn't start shouting his mouth off about evil Tories and wicked sort of Tories wanting to starve children to death, which is what that would happen in the normal political world. He did it from his own experience. He was very articulate, and he didn't go overboard, and, and he made a robust case. And that was a perfect example of somebody making a robust case. It was listened to and then acted upon. Now you can we can argue about whether they just did it to shut him up or or whatever. We'll probably never know the answer to that. But that was a very interesting case about how he managed to not polarize things, and he managed to persuade people who instinctively might have thought, mm, "I'm not sure this is such a good idea." He managed to get them on his side, and in the end, whether we're in the world of business or the world of politics or indeed broadcasting. Um, most people are there to persuade somebody of their own point of view. They're not going to do that by shouting at them. And that's where, going back to the Brexit referendum, the Remain campaign went totally wrong. It was all about the wicked Brexiteers. We're all going to hell in a handcart. There was no sunny Uplands vision at all, no vision of what the EU might look like if we stayed in it in a positive way. And there was there was a, a, a somebody in Australia, there's a, a very maverick politician called Bob Catter, and he's a, I think he's an independent in the Australian Parliament. And he's been campaigning against General Motors because they've shut down Holden cars in Australia. And he did a press call uh, earlier today, and he was dressed as the Grim Reaper in front of the Australian Senate. And you thought, if only Alastair Campbell and Andrew Adonis had thought of that in the Remain campaign, I bet they would have done the same thing. Um, because that was all it was. It was all about negativity. And again, if you think back in political terms, think of the politicians that have won elections, both in this country and the United States. Reagan beat Carter, positive versus negative. You had Thatcher beating Callaghan. You had Blair beating Major. You had Boris beating Corbyn. And, and it, I mean, you can go back in history and it works virtually every time. The politician that is able to articulate something positive is the politician that will come through and triumph. And I think that's the same in the world of business. If you are, if you're a business leader, a chief executive, who can get up and inspire your workforce and pull them together and show that you have the vision to get your company out of the doldrums. This is how we're going to do it. You're all part of it. Let's get to work. Um, you're going to be far more successful than the likes of the chief executive of British Airways at the moment, who thinks the way to get his company out of the doldrums is to threaten his workforce. Mm. Never going to work. 
Yeah. And not only does he piss his workforce off, he pisses customers off. In that a lot of people think, well, I'm not going to fly with British Airways anymore if this is how they operate. World's favourite airline. Well, they might have been when they, they coined that slogan. They're now the 56th uh, world's favourite airline, three from the bottom. Yeah. Well, that, there's a long way to come back from that. Really, really bad, bad PR in in that yeah. situation. Um, I, I, it's striking there what you said about uh, you know the the positivity uh, versus the negativity. So I, you know I'm imagining uh, you know sort of virtual uh, conversation between uh, you know global business, uh, a whole lot of people on it, and you know it is perhaps the emphasis around positivity, even though people have different views about Trump or Boris or whatever it happens to be, you know, what's the point of bringing this into this Zoom session? Uh, and if if the emphasis is on if there is something that we can take from that opinion, where we can all feel actually that's positive and helpful for us to think, rethink, relearn, do whatever we've got to do, great. Uh, we're, we're, we're accommodating, we're interested in something that will impact this business in a positive way. But that idea of, of drains rather than radiators, mm. uh, you know, maybe it's about being explicit about the kinds of debates that we have. Is it a learning opportunity for us to do positive things? Or is it going to be a slagging off and a negative thing that's going to bring us down? And that, I think, is quite useful for me to think of it that way. I think, uh, it, go on, go on in. No, 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 go you. Uh, uh, so I think where um, I work in a big global organisation and I'm, I lead a, a big function with that organisation, so I work quite, quite closely with other stakeholders. And I think what you've just mentioned, JB, there resonates because it is a difficult thing for us to come out and have a position on because there are so much polarised opinion about, but actually... As an organization, the internal comms message is more about how we build upon this. Actually, we recognize there is a challenge in the world outside and we need to to move forwards with it. But it absolutely was is is intense to be a message of positivity. I think um, that the negative element, of course, is there is always going to be a um, minority of your workforce that have those extreme opinions that can cause the organization a huge amount of disruption. Um, and there has to be surely for people listening to this podcast as people managers thinking about how they deal with those more tricky individuals that can cause them more harm than good. The ones that will plant incendiary questions in town halls, those ones that will post emails to large groups of people that may cause um, division and opinion. And I guess it, it resonates with what you said, Ian, is that it's the people that have the united vision as opposed to divide and conquer. And, and I'm really fascinated, by the way, if we, we listen to this podcast after Trump's either re-election or, or uh, beating by Biden potentially in November, whether that um, resonates. Because I sense, based on the history, if it repeats itself, you would hope, well, my opinion is I hope that Trump doesn't necessarily have a second term. But there we go. I, I think a lot of it is to do with leadership. I mean, you, you talk about people who are, I mean, for want of a better word, troublemakers. You, you either harness the... I mean, people always think of troublemakers as being entirely negative. Actually, they're not, because sometimes organisations do need disruptors. You do need people who are going to say, well, hang on, I don't agree with that, and they say it in quite an aggressive manner. But it, but it, that's got to be channelled. If you can't channel it, you get rid of them. It's as simple as that. Because I mean, you can't you can't have permanent disruption, and if there are people that aren't 
that don't buy into the strategy that you as the business leader and your team have worked out for the company, then there is only one option for those people. They either leave of their own volition or they leave through yours, um, which may sound completely harsh, but I think particularly in smaller organizations, and I, I've never run a big company. I've never been interested in that. Um, all I think the, the maximum number of people I've employed at any one time is probably 20. Um, and there you really do have to have a team, particularly if you're operating in a sector that is always on the edge financially. I mean, public, you don't get much more sort of unprofitable than publishing or book selling. Um, and um, you... you, you, you if you have one weak link in a, in a team of 10 or 20, that can be potentially catastrophic for your business. And I mean, I, I've had to make very difficult decisions on one or two occasions of saying to people, well, I'm sorry, either you're not performing or you're actually being a, a disruptor in this company and I'd like you to leave, please. Now, nobody gets any joy out of having those conversations or if you do you probably shouldn't be in in the in the <laughs> position in the first place or you're just a complete sadist um and it's particularly difficult i mean I, i've actually had to sack a really good friend once which and it doesn't get more difficult than that now we're still friends today so i must have done it in in the right way i suppose but um it, it's it's a tricky one because and that's but it is what leadership is all about and um it doesn't matter whether it's a big company, a small company, a public sector organization, a political organization. Every organization requires leaders because not everyone is as motivated by their work as probably the three of us are. A lot of people are just quite happy doing their job on a nine to five basis, taking their wage packet and then they're forgetting about work at the end of the day. Now, I, I, I can't do that. I never have been able to. I, I'm a workaholic. I'll, I'll still be tapping away at my computer doing stuff at one o'clock in the morning, at weekends. If I'm, if I'm watching something on Netflix, inevitably I've got my laptop open, got my phone on and all the rest of it. Not everybody's built like that. And we have to recognize that, that um, most people actually want a quiet life they want to what they want to earn enough money to have a nice life look after their family buy a new car once every couple of years and go on a couple of nice holidays each year that's what motivates most people now there are some times when i think i'd quite like a life like that as well um but it's ha never happened yet <laughs> nah, not me. i i like i like the title of your uh up when is your book um August. coming out ian well, it was supposed to have come out a couple of weeks ago, um, I like, but, but given I, what's happened, um, it's been delayed to the 6th of August. Ah, I like the title, Why Can't We All Just Get Along? And I, I, I'm going to just... Um, I've pre-ordered, by the way, JB, have you? Ah, I, why did, why did you <laughs> well order done. one for me as well? I thought we were mates. I thought we were mates. And I, I wonder whether sort of education um, came up in your in your thinking about that because more than ever we need people in our society who can communicate and collaborate effectively and I've just got a hunch I can't back it up with loads of research but I worry that our education uh, system isn't setting us up particularly well uh, for people to get along uh, in, in, a, in a work setting further down the line and I, I wonder whether education at all came up in your in your work for that book um not in a massive way i mean i was very conscious that when, when you write a book like that when you talk and and it's kind of there are lots of autobiographical things in it. i use episodes from my life to illustrate a point that i'm making 
Um, and it is all about people, well, as I've already said, sort of trying to understand other people's point of view. But at the end of the book, I did think to myself, I, I hope this doesn't read as one long whinge about things. I mean, so how awful social media is, how awful politicians are, how awful the media is, etc. And um, I don't think it does, but I thought, okay, well, there's one way to um, show that I've actually done some thinking about this. I'm going to write 50 ways we can improve our public discourse. And I divided it up into 10 different sections, whether it's sort of in the media, whether it's just in everyday life. And it was it's literally sort of almost 10 bullet points per section as to how I think that things could change. Now, you're never going to change everyone on social media, I mean, because it's so... Um, spontaneous I, mean, I used to think blogs were spontaneous but of course twitter then overtook blogs because you can just literally go and do it and constantly i have to stop myself if someone calls me a twat on twitter my my instinctive human response is to call them a fucking twat and then it escalates into a, oh i don't know what the, <laughs> where do you go I, I from there yeah I, I, let's not go uh, anywhere from that <laughs> so i thought okay well i'm not going to call people a twat anymore i call them a muppet which somehow is more wounding but not mm -hmm. so insulting um and it, it, it's just, I mean, there are all sorts of ways that we can think of that we can do it, but we're not thinking that way at the moment. We have to get our own way. We have to win the argument. Mm. We, we have to, it's like, and I'm afraid um, LBC are guilty of this, I think. In, we have reached a very young audience at LBC through viral videos on Facebook. But mm. you look at the headlines that they attach to this, where every, Ian Dale has a row with X, Y, or Z. Yeah. And you listen back to the interview and you think, well, if that was a row, they've got a bloody good imagination. <laughs> but of course, it's all clickbait. They, they want people to listen to the clips. But in the end, you, they're crying wolf too often because if people, people click on it because they think they're going to hear a heated row and then they don't, well, are they going to click on it again? It's kind of the daily mailization of discourse. Um, and it's all about the clicks. Now, I don't like that particularly. And there have been one or two occasions when I've had to say, can you please take that headline off the story? It doesn't bear any relation to what happened whatsoever, which doesn't make me very popular. But I, I, I just don't want to be in a situation where people think that I, I'm always trying to have a row because I'm genuinely not. Yes, there will be occasions when I have a row. And fine, put the right headline on it then. But not, I mean, I did one last night. What was it on? Um... It was on Cecil Rhodes, the statue in Oxford. It suddenly flashed up on my screen. Oh, the Oxford College has decided to remove it. So I then apparently have a heated row with my co-presenter for the evening, Denise, who's a black lady who, who I'd sort of talent spotted on the show a few weeks ago and invited to co-present with me. And we, we had a perfectly reasonable debate about it. I said it shouldn't be taken down. She said it should. She gave her reasons. I gave mine. Didn't come to a conclusion. But it wasn't a heated row, and that's that's the that's the problem I think we've got. Yeah, like a, a, an escalation that, that yeah. didn't really happen. Yeah, exactly. And I think, and, particularly on issues of race, I mean, let's face it, we've all we're all in some ways, whether we're black, white, Asian, whatever, we're all treading a slight tightrope here. Yeah. And I don't think sort of lurid headlines actually help the public debate on these issues at all. I agree. I I think. Um, no, you don't. You're just agreeing for the sake. No, of it. I am. I am <laughs> fucking agreeing for once. Yeah, for once. You should rest, listen to the rest of the back catalogue. Um, so, so, 
how do how do um, leaders leave their opinions at the door if they feel it's going to cause more conflict than good? Because if I look, if I look at the likes of this week was a prime example. Diane Abbott before she got into um, opposition politics in in cabinet, so to speak, I actually thought she was quite articulate and she was quite likable. Um, on this week then she went into the opposition party and it just seemed that everything she did was actually out there to to get one upmanship you then uh, you then look at ed balls was 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 very unpopular by um, people that were perhaps conservative voters and yet now he's seen as a hugely popular figure that seems to be bringing people together what is it that that they seem to be able to switch on switch off that we can learn from that we need the 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 not divisive individual as opposed to the united individual well i think it is possible for a politician to be themselves even when they are in the cabinet or shadow cabinet um there's a labor mp that I, i've never met called um oh no i've forgotten his name and alex norris that's it no one's ever heard of him he's a junior health spokesman for the labor party um think was only elected at the last election um, he comes on my programme quite regularly. And we now actually ask for him because he's somebody who can speak human. He's not just going to sort of recite a load of statistics and the party line. Um, I mean, he's got to give the party line, but he does it in a way that normal people can relate to. Um, and we take him in preference to, shall we say, one of his colleagues who, I mean, it's actually nothing wrong with him, but he doesn't sort of speak in the, in the same way. Um, and Diane Abbott, I mean, she always had a reputation for speaking her mind, and she still did to an extent as Shadow Home Secretary. Um, I mean, she was, ne- by the way, and she was never in the cabinet. Thank God. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean, Ed Balls. I mean, I think he suffered from his reputation as a sort of being Gordon Brown's chief advisor, and he he wasn't really ever seen to be his own man. He was always seen to be Gordon Brown's man. And and then he got a kicking at the election. And after that, I mean, his real personality came out. Now, whenever I interviewed him, I, I tried to bring out his personality. Um, when he was learning to play the piano, I remember at a Labour Party conference once, I, I got one of my producers to go and rent a <laughs> sort of one of these handheld piano th- things. And so we, we did a serious interview on what his policies were on tax or whatever. And I said, and by the way, Ed, here's a little surprise for you. So we uncovered this piano. And so and we got him to play. And, and he was brilliant. I mean, really went along with it. I mean, you could tell he was absolutely shitting himself. <laughs> but he, he went along with it. It got on all of the different TV broadcasts as well because it was something different and people always want funny things at party conferences. Uh, and that was kind of, I think, the start of his uh, journey into public affection. And you're right. Who would have thought that Ed Balls would be so popular? I mean, Boris Johnson did it the other way around. Remember, he only became to public prominence when he first chaired Have I Got News for You? That yeah, was, that was yeah. the first time that the British public thought, Oh, he's a character, isn't he? So he, he sort of did it from that way round. And I think there's a lesson there for people as well in politics. I'm conscious of our international audience, JB, because we have about 40% of our downloads comes from um, US and Americas. I, I get 8% of mine from uh, America, and, and I think it is 20% the whole world. So we're a bit behind you on that. Uh, well, that's probably because we have no one but listening think, in England. I think your audience is somewhat <laughs> bigger than ours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Percentage means nothing. Of, of only me and not, his wife. So Yours is bigger than ours. We're not, not jealous, though. Not I've got more hair than you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. It depends who you ask. Anyway, enough of the smuts. Um, what what uh, Internationally, JB, I'm trying to think here of, 
of comparisons we can make because I'm conscious for our audience they will be thinking um uh um uh, darn Brits yeah um Trump is someone that causes even so I, I talk internally at do, work do you do you ha do you have listeners in Australia I'm sure you must do a, a small you, number you, all right, well, just very quickly on Australia. Uh, Julia Gillard and Kevin Rudd, both recent Australian prime ministers, won a complete fake, won the genuine article. And people can see exactly which one that is. So if you, there's a brilliant three-part series called The Killing Season on ABC in Australia. You can get, look at it on their website, um, which is all about the, the visceral nature of Australian politics and the fights between Julia Gillard and Kevin Rudd, one-time allies, and eventually, uh, I mean, the, the guy that the person that comes out of that really badly is Kevin Rudd because he, the interviews that he gives, you can see that he's just he's not genuine. And, and as I, yeah. I said earlier, people spot a fake. Whereas Julia Gillard, a lot of people really disliked her, but I don't think anybody ever accused her of being a fake. And I think that's probably the biggest insult that you can ever give anyone. And I think it applies across the board, not just in politics. If you think someone's a fake. You're not going to want to do business with them. You're not going to want to vote for them. You're not going to want to trust them. And, and trust, I think, nowadays is a really important um, thing to have in your sort of arm, armory of um, positive uh, things that you bring to the table. Because um, if you don't trust someone, you're not going to want to necessarily vote for them, give them your business, buy from them, because you think you might get done over. It's funny, Ian, because you talked about the person you fired earlier on, um, who I guess will remain nameless, of course. But um, I guess the trust there is you trusted their intent or their integrity, but you didn't necessarily trust their competence. And in the mind of the public and employees that, that either work for you or are customers of yours, they want to trust that you have... The, the 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 competence to do the job effectively to deliver the service um they need to have trust in your integrity the fact that you are honest you are authentic and of course your intentions are good um and that's something that we we found myself and jb when we're talking to people that's one of the challenges they fight find is difficult how do they score on all of those different trust measures um jb well, I uh, so I was doing uh, was doing a little reading uh, yesterday. I got a chance. I'm building a shed in the garden, uh, a kind of man cave workspace place, and uh, I found a in my lunch break reading this little article about uh, post COVID world. And there's a lot of shit flying around, but this one particularly interested me, and it was in three parts, and um, it was about your job satisfaction. What's that going to look like? Uh, trust uh, was was the other thing, and uh, ethical leadership. Corporate world across the world, uh, I, you know, I think I think there has been uh, a, a kind of recent history of of some pretty unethical uh, business practice, and uh, I I wonder whether uh, and I, I was interested about this this. Um, swing from you know the charismatic leader to the to the to the less charismatic leader that you were talking about ian and whether we're now going into an opportunity i'm not saying it would be exploited but an opportunity for a greater ethical dimension uh in business world i i think that i think that is going to happen i think it already is happening in in some ways uh, and I, I still don't think that we as consumers understand the power that we hold 
in this way. Mm. And um, I think we're going to find a lot more consumer activism um, where we look at a company, and, and I find myself doing it, in that I, I hate too much packaging on food. Yes. So if, if on the rare occasion that I go to a supermarket, if I've got a choice of two products and one's got less packaging than the other, even if it's more expensive, I'll probably buy that one. Um, I, I think in terms of, I mean, whatever your views on climate change, I think we are all becoming slightly more sort of environmentally aware. Mm. And whether you believe that climate change is all man-made or not, it does actually make sense to be more conservational in, in, in many ways. So I think that's going to happen. I mentioned British Airways earlier. Am I more likely to go on a British Airways flight as a result of the last three weeks? No, I'm not. Um, I think the cars we buy, uh, again, and I mean, it, say, for example, um, going on back to Brexit, you look at the free trade agreement negotiations that are going on. Um, if at the, on the 31st of January, say, say the Germans decide, sorry, the 31st of December, say the Germans decide on their own to unilaterally veto um, what a free trade agreement with Britain, I can see a lot of people in this country thinking, okay, well, I'm not going to buy a German car next year now. Mm. Now, you might think, well, that's a bit, that, that's just cutting off your nose to spite your face. I mean, I, I'm a big Audi fan. Why would, if I like Audis, am I really not going to buy an Audi because of that? Well, I think you'll find quite a lot of people probably wouldn't. Um, there are all sorts of examples in every sector of the economy where I think people are going to make informed decisions about what they buy and how often they buy it. Um, you look at um, sort of hol holidays to an extent after the Greek financial crisis in 20, what was it, 2010, I think a lot of the people went to Greece on their holiday, not because they thought, oh, we can get a cheap holiday, but because they felt a bit of solidarity with the poor Greek restaurant owners and hotel owners. And, and I think that sort of thing is going to come to the fore much more over the next 10 years, where we all sort of decide, okay, well, we hold the power here and we're going to wield it. And the fact that we can buy so much more online now, we've got used to buying online. I mean, I think this crisis hastened the end of the normal high street in this country by at least five years. Um, and we we have to think, and that that's something that requires real leadership, particularly in, in UK local authorities. But I suspect, again, this is going to happen all over the world. How do you reshape the high street, the planning laws and all the rest of it. How do you get local communities to come behind um, different ways of um, sort of formatting things on, on the high street? Um, so I think the, the post-COVID world is going to be a fascinating one. Someone said to me the other day, we, we talk about um, the, the era after 1945. I think they said they thought that we're now going to be talking about the post-COVID era. So 2020 will take on the significance that 1815 did, that 1867 or 1914 or 1945. This is going to be one of those years which has been the most god-awful year, but will be one that the historians constantly come back to, um, whatever country you're talking about. I think that's, um, I, I think to look at it in in kind of decades uh, is, is, you know, what's going to happen in the next 10, 10 years is a, is a very interesting way of looking at things um, rather than too far. You know, 10 years is, is, is doable. We can build stuff. We can make things happen. And, and again, of course, we'll, we'll be dribbling in our retirement homes for the bewildered. About. I'll be in my shed. <laughs> yes. I'll be in my shed. Speak for yourself, um, Jen. Speak for yourself. And I, um, the other thing that was quite interesting was the, 
uh, the presence of guilds or the, re the returning of guilds uh, and guilds um, coming back in a sort of digital format. So, you know, lots of self-employed people are beginning to come together as a guild uh, and trading their wares. Uh, and I think there's an opportunity perhaps there for the power to shift uh, from the employer um, more to the employee, like this is our guild, this is how we do this, yeah. which I thought was really interesting uh, about how we all might form and belong to guilds uh, that will, will create the, the way that we want to work, that, that sort of idea of uh, job satisfaction um, coming coming to the fore and the way on our terms as a, as a guild. So we, yeah. we, we create them and we, and we sign up to them, which I'm beginning to do actually as... Uh, as it happens, and I, I think that, I think that's a good a good development. There is another term that I picked up in my in my lunch hour from building my shed yesterday, which is a passion tax, which we have to watch out for. And um, it's not a, what you do behind the bike shed. Um, it's um, where someone. Uh, well, let me give it as an example. Um, you know, someone who works in a zoo, um, and you know they do it because they love it and therefore they get screwed uh, and they're kept on a very, yeah. very low wage. You know, there is a, a counter danger uh, that people will be so desperate for work, uh, they'll, they'll, you know, end up um, being yeah. persecuted. Um, well, it's a bit like me. I mean, I get paid £10.50 per Well, thing. that's it, Ian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How long have we got? I'm conscious of time because I think... I need to go relatively soon because I've got to take my car down to the garage, believe it. Is it, is it an Audi? Or? This is actually, it is an Audi. This is my first trip out for 102 days, having, oh. my, having my car serviced. Wow. You've, well, been, you've been broadcasting all this time from home? Yep, absolutely. Um, and it's, I think in about 75 programmes, we've only had about three line dropouts, which I don't think is bad. Uh, and the, the quality, if people didn't know I was broadcasting from my bedroom, they would never be able to guess. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, well, it's actually gone. I've got quite used to it now. On the podcast, you normally have the dogs featured. My Labrador is underneath my desk at the minute, but yours are terriers, right? I don't. I, I have a miniature schnauzer and a Jack Russell. And um, the problem is that if anybody comes to the door and we have sort of Hermes deliveries about three times a day, it seems now, uh, they just go mental. So I have to shut them out. They have been in a couple of times when I've done podcasts and stuff, and they're actually very good. But um, I just know in the middle of an interview with Boris Johnson, I'd get dude yapping his head off. <laughs> well, we, we, I've got a Border Terrier and it has a very strong opinion, uh, yeah. particularly when there's deliveries. In fact, I think my wife's taken um, Twizzle uh, out for a walk. So we went Twizzle. We, yeah, Twizzle. I know. Where well, the kids decided it was called I Twizzle. mean, honestly, yeah, you I know. need control over your children. Well, they need a good sorting out. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ian, do, do, do you have any questions that you want to ask us about, um, you know, our world or anything, whether whether we broadcast or not, doesn't really matter. But uh, it'd be just nice to um, kind of fill in any gaps if you're thinking, who the hell have I just invested all this time with? <laughs> <laughs> well, what are your day jobs? <laughs> this. We, we, we make, we make a tenner a year out of it. Go on, JB, you go first. I'll go second. Um well, I, I run a company called Trimodus Limited and I uh, work with a bunch of actors and uh, we used to go around the world running workshops to help leaders communicate and collaborate more effectively 
Um, it's not a dance movement or anything. So we do uh, lots of kind of um, set pieces about how not to do it. And then we get the audience directing us towards uh, perfect communication uh, conversations where sometimes feedback is a little bit hard for people to give. Uh, so they pull their punches. Well, we, we, we say don't do that. Um, and so we did that uh, as workshops around the world. We're not doing that anymore, funnily enough. Um, so everything that we're doing is the same, only virtually. Yeah. So what I plan to do over two and a half to three years of turning my business more into an online service, I'm now doing in two and a half to three months. Hence, yeah. I'm building a studio at the bottom of my garden. Um, and I'm also uh, in the middle of, well, coming to the end of writing a book. It's called No Normal. Uh, and I'm writing it with a client of mine called William Rogers, who uh, won the Sunday Times Best Company to work for four years in a row, with my help, obviously. You know, um, he knows. You know, who William Rogers is, don't you, Ian? UKRD, the the small uh, X group now part of Bauer. Oh, you see, I, uh, if you say William Rogers to me, I think of Bill Rogers, the former Labour cabinet minister, whose memoirs I published in 2000. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, but it's interesting you say you're having to do that very quickly, because I'd always had this idea that when I eventually finish in the media and sort of go into semi-retirement, I don't think I'd ever retire, I thought, well, um, I'm going to create an online political shop. But I'm actually doing it now. In the, it, it, it arose very simply because I thought, well, I've got this book coming out. I've got 200,000 followers on Twitter. I've got all my radio listeners. I know that a lot of them will want to have signed copies, he said rather arrogantly. Um, so I thought, well, how can I allow them to buy sound, signed copies? So I, I'd, I'd already bought one of these little credit card machines if I was going to speak at a book festival or something. <clears throat> so I thought, well, it must be possible to create an online shop doing this. And sure enough, it was. So I just created one page for the book. And then I thought to myself, well, I've got all of this old stock from Politico's, my old political bookshop in the barn, like mugs and things with political slogans on. Why don't I put a couple of those on? And to my absolute astonishment, no sooner did I put them on that they were just selling like hotcakes. So then I thought, well, let's commission some new ones. (laughs) And they went like hotcakes. So I thought, let's commission some political baseball caps. So I've got some Trump 2020, Biden 2020. um, I'm a Kia leader. Get it? Ah, back Boris, or I back Boris, and um, Layla for leader. If you're a sort of, um, I do apologise to all the uh, worldwide listeners at this point, but Layla Moran is uh, wants to be leader of the Liberal Democrats in this country, rather small fringe party. Um, so I got, I, I, I just did quite small runs of those, but they're all going well. So I'm developing this, but the problem is, and this is a, a classic business problem, I think is that I can't expand too quickly because at the moment it's just me doing it. So I'm actually packing the mugs myself. I'm watching <laughs> television and packing mugs to go out. Um, but at some point I'm going to have to get somebody to do it for me because I can't cope with the volume at the moment. So, um, and I've just commissioned a website and I'm actually going to recreate it. I've never actually told anyone this before. So you have a little scoop on your hands here. Ooh. Oh my I'm goodness. actually going to recreate, I'm going to use the Politico's name, um, which I still own. Um, so Politicos will be reborn again sometime in July, and I'll probably sell books on it as well, I suppose. 
I run a global learning function for a, a professional services firm. <clears throat> Interestingly, similar to JB, um, the my entire team has always been in person around the world training various groups of people. Uh, JB's been one of the people that I was trained by years ago, now as a supplier of the company I work for. Now look at him. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and interestingly, we've had to completely transform how we do business. And in fact, I've said that they need to become more like broadcasters. Um, because clearly standing in front of a room of people versus doing it virtually, you are in a studio, yeah. you can't read the audience's minds, you can't read their facial expressions. How do you keep them listening? How do you hook them in? So I think there's actually for any out of work radio presenters, there's quite a lot of opportunity to educate people. How oh, to do digital you stuff. say freelance, I'm only broadcasting three hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> JB, JB's budget's just been cut. Sorry, JB. Sorry. You're so fickle. (laughs) Um, I don't care. I've got my shed. That's true. That's true. Um, uh, Thank you very much for your time, Ian. I really appreciate it. Not Uh, at all. Hopefully you found this um, a a good use of an hour and and five minutes of your time. I've absolutely enjoyed it. And um, if anyone, any of your listeners would like to listen to our For The Many podcast, which as you said, I do with Jackie Smith, um, we do it twice a week. Um, It's quite sweary. It's quite smutty. We spend 20 minutes or so at the beginning talking about the political issues of the week and then uh, we answer listeners' questions, which, um, as you know, and it can lead into all sorts of unfortunate directions. Absolutely. And also make sure you get the book as well uh, when it comes out in August. You can pre-order on Amazon, which is where I ordered it from. Is there anywhere else we can go? Ah. Or if you want a signed copy, you can do it. Just go to politicos.co.uk and that'll forward you to the page where you can buy the signed book as well. Maybe I need to do that one. Um, thank you very much, Ian. Well, how was that, JB? It was good for me. I thought there were some very interesting points in all of that. And I guess one of the really, and I know this is about British politics, but it, it, I think it does work in, in other parts of the world as well. You get this sort of seriously charismatic leader, um, and then you get uh, a less charismatic leader, you know, a, a sort of less assertive uh, leader and then that that yo-yos um from and and ian was able to track that back yeah. in british politics and i think he had a go at american politics as well but i'm sure that's true of other parts of the world mm. now that that fact alone was very interesting and i wonder in organizations whether there's a similar thing going on I think, you know where we yeah. recover from that and then then we do do the opposite what do you think i, I think you're right with with um so much of what he said resonated with what we talk about for people leaders. It was, you know, I, I was trying to keep up at some point because he was coming out with so many great statements. And I think for me, the biggest one that, that screamed the loudest was all about the vision and talking about the opportunity rather than the problem. Uh, and I think it's it's absolutely true. I know that I've had to lead teams through really, really dark times. But if you talk about the shit hitting the fan and we're all doomed that breeds a real horrible feeling amongst your team but being able to create a vision and rally people around the common good even if that common good is a sinking ship i think that is something that we all aspire to have because for me as a leader of people i would want my best people to want to work for me again and if I did not behave in a leadership way that talked about the positives and the vision, even if the vision is an awfully bleak outlook, 
those people will remember that when I perhaps am in happier times and want them to work for me again. So for me, the the, the single biggest thing, if I was to take one thing from, from that really good interview would be the importance of not necessarily spin, but actually working out how we can create vision regardless of what goes on in the world around us. How can we create opportunity? How can we create potential? How can we create belief from our people? Um, and I, the, the word that uh, I really got from it was, you know, this word positivity, mm. uh, being positive. And it really got me thinking about, you know, when, we, when we're working with a whole load of people, they all come in to the office or into the, the, the virtual session that, that we're in uh, with with their politics and and with their anger and with their frustration and everything else and you know maybe the the workplace is not the best place uh, to just throw that in um, willy nilly uh, but if if you have a strong opinion uh, and and you want to express it in the workplace then put it through the filter of positive effect and construction you know what what's it going to do for the people in this business if if you feel that your opinion is going to create a healthy debate and that your environment allows for that and your intent is something positive and constructive then do it that's what i took away that's that's what i assimilate it that's how I felt about it mm. and I think the you know kind of post-covid 21st century enlightened leader I think is going to be damn good at facilitating debate like that where the test for that would be the positive intent from the contributor of the opinion and being able to listen to the other person, which is another point that Ian made. It's about listening. And, you know, I think people say, well, I do listen. No, you don't. Actually, a lot of the time, people aren't really listening. And when you say, so what did I just say? Uh, <laughs> uh, so I, what I did think... you say again? Sorry, say it again. <laughs> <laughs> So it's really important, I think, that point about you can't have a debate if you don't listen to the other person's point of view. Mm. I, I, Full stop. What Ian said at the beginning also resonated, which was all about the fact that at the moment there seems to be a sense that people don't want to listen to anyone else's views. And actually it irritates them. And and maybe for, for, for you know, I feel a bit of a centrist. You know, I, I want tolerance of of everybody. Uh, regardless of sex, race, um, sexual orientation and everything else. I want peace, but what I can't tolerate is extremism in both ends of the spectrum. But I equally am not going to come out and start attacking either of those people for their actions because I know that actually what, what gives them the best of satisfaction is that they're annoying the centrist person like me because I apparently am sitting on the fence. Um, and and that was really that that resonated with me personally um, as much as anything else. Um, but um, some really valuable points there. And by the way, as a listener, we would love for you to email in your comments too. If you have any comments about it, globalleadershippodcast at gmail.com is the email, or you can find us on um, Lead Learn Pod. 
um, on Twitter or, of course, look me and JB up on LinkedIn as ever. Absolutely. And um, I think it, as Ian mentioned, uh, he's got a fabulous podcast. He does it twice a week uh, with Jackie Smith, who's the former Labour Home Secretary. And it, it's called For the Many. And it's it's great, actually. It, it's kind of grown up and it covers all sorts of um, dimensions, mainly, mainly around politics and so on. Um, but they're just really as i said it's it's a kind of it, it has a zingy tension to it, it does. which is brilliant but the beauty of it is i think it's a master class for all of our listeners to see how people that have completely polarized views on so many things ironically are the best of friends um as as again ian mentioned in his interview um you know people that there, there, there was that survey where um people that voted remain would not be happy if their their daughter or son married a Brexit mm. voter. Uh, and yet I know in my family, there were people at complete opposite ends of the spectrum. And you and me had, we, we were actually pretty much in the same position, but you were probably left of one direction and I was right of one direction or vice versa, which made us vote opposite. But we ultimately still would have a drink after that discussion. And and, and I think only, I can remember, because you and me spent about 100 days together last year, didn't we? And I think there was only one conversation where you and me got pissed off with each other and and I think we just went, well, we just have to agree to disagree. And that was about the, and I think we were walking. We were in Romania, I think. I remember it vividly thinking. Oh, I, I mean, was definitely in Romania. You were in Libria. Oh, harsh. I like it. I like it. Um, a good play on words. Uh, no, no, I meant, yes. Budapest or Buc no, Bucharest, sorry, Bucharest. But I remember walking back thinking, oh, goodness, that's the first time. Oh, you know, it's like your first argument with your wife. It's It's a tragic moment for us all. Well, that's quite touching, actually. I feel quite sentimental. Well, uh, yeah, for those days yeah. well, when we, we were having rows together. Well, based on the fact that we all both need to boycott British Airways because Ian's told us to, and the fact that we are we've now lose we're going to lose our gold status based on the fact we're probably flying never again because of COVID environmental recognition of what's changed since COVID has happened. Plus the fact we're probably looking to save some money. Yada yada yada. Well, if Boris can have a plane, so can we. This is true. let's get one. Yeah, this is let's true. just get one. Well, all right. Well, let, let's do. You that, learn then. to fly, and I'll I'll. Be the air hostess. I oh, know. What do you call them now? Uh, cabin, cabin crew. Cabin crew. Yeah. Air yeah. hostess again with D and I on the agenda right now. You need to be careful. It's it's. Uh... Do you know? I always get that wrong. So sorry, sorry. Bloop that out, everybody. It's not what I meant. It's kind of you know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, cabin crew. Yeah. Well, you go back to your your smoking jacket and pipe, and we'll um, we'll call this oh, this, this here episode. We here we go. <laughs> what are you yeah. what are you up to apart from? Are you can are you now planning to just continue building your shed or sorry your shed your home studio i am now officially obsessed with my shed uh i was working till eight o'clock last night um and on it and i, I it it's it, it is just an absolute passion of mine it, it, it i will not once it's built i won't be leaving it no, no one's going to take me out of my shed ever. I, I do have shed stroke studio envy, I have to say, because as you probably gathered during this episode, you're in a nice, I'm in a conservatory, which the echo is quite irritating. Yeah, yeah. And in a home studio, it would be close and intimate and there would be no echo. You should see the insulation board that I got the other day. It is massive. It's going to be so quiet in there. 
And once I get my banjo in there on the wall. Oh, fucking hell. Your banjo and your your big, massive thing in your studio. Jesus Christ, JB. <laughs> Where's this podcast gone? <laughs> and my fridge. Oh, it's going to be brilliant. Oh. It's going to be brilliant. Uh, I think, I think you know what, we should say no more at this point. I think this episode has said it all. Please, ladies and gents, if you like the podcast, please do give us a rating on whatever platform you use. If you think we're shit, please email us and tell us how we can improve because the more five-star ratings we get, the more chance we have of other people seeing it, just like you, wherever you may be in the world. But other than that, also, please do email in your questions and comments. We do have some questions for next week's episode already, uh, but we'll build on that one with more questions. And of course, your comments and uh, obviously if anyone happening to have listened to this one off the back of Ian's um, recommendation of it um, thank you for giving us a listen today anyway I've been Anthony Price and I've been Jonathan Bradley and we've been looking at our little passions and politics in the no normal world that we're now in hope you enjoy ta-ta ta-ta